I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. So Sam, something that you know about me, uh, I'm not sure if other people know about me, is that I am a huge fan of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, yep, I am aware of that fact. I grew up watching it, watched it with my mom on the regular. For those who are less aware, uh, is Next Generation the television program? It is indeed. Okay, with Shatner? Uh, no, it's uh, with... Oh, uh, with with uh, Professor X? <laughs> yeah, it's Patrick Stewart, plays Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, okay. And uh, so me and my roommate are re-watching parts of it. And I happened across the episode where the character named Worf, his parents come to the station. Worf's a Klingon. He was raised by humans. Klingon is a different group of people? It, it's, it's an alien race. Okay. And so his parents come on board, and his parents... What are, what are their names? Uh, Sergei and Helena Rozhenko. Are the names of Worf's Klingon parents? No, no. They're his human parents. They. Oh, they, okay. His, okay, his okay. real parents were killed in, in this incident in a Klingon outpost called Kittimer. And anyway, they couldn't find any his family, so they raised him themselves. So Worf is is raised by Russians? I don't know if they're explicitly Russian, but they're sort of like former Soviet bloc. Okay. And Sergei Rozhenko gets off of the transporter bay and Science alert over here. And it's Theodore Bakel. What? First of all, we should we should tell our listeners who Theodore Bakel is. Theodore Bakel is the OG of like Yiddish klezmer music. He scored Fiddler on the Roof. He probably did every Jewish Broadway play in a certain era. Most people would say that he's the most important player in Jewish klezmer music in the 20th century. Yeah, and I mean he was on he was on a lot of television programs. He was on the Twilight Zone. But for listeners of Trey Podcast, he was a consistent, active leftist political figure throughout his life. Wait, so does he have a recurring role on Star Trek he Next has, Generation? He has a recurring role as Sergei Rozhenko, Worf's father. Wow. I can't believe because I've seen the entire series of Next Generation so many times. How I, many times, David? I don't know, like maybe seven at wow. this point. I, I I never recognized him before. Wow. So I guess an anti-scoyach to myself for never realizing that Theodore Bakel was playing this role. For people who are listening who don't know Theo Bakel, go listen to his work. He's he's truly amazing. Um, but Sam, I know you've been really busy uh, over the past week. Before we jump into the episode today, uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about? No, yes, it is. No, yes. I think that cancels each other out. Me, I, me, I. Little behind the scenes insight. It is 10.52 p.m. We are in a hot studio. I am very tired. I guess I wanted to tell you that I finally have listened to a podcast with Jesse Thorne and actually appreciated it. I'm, I feel like I'm going in the other direction where, like, over the years, I've started to be a lot more suspicious of it. Like, some of his interviews are sketching me out. Yeah, I should say for our listeners that uh, Jesse Thorne is the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It's an NPR show produced by the Maximum Fun Network that he started. He's this white dude from the West Coast. He's this big figure in podcasting. So anyway, you started listening to Bullseye? <laughs> no, I didn't start listening to Bullseye. I started listening to Judge John Hodgman. Oh, okay. And Jesse Thorne is a very funny bailiff <laughs> where he asked people what they thought of the decision after it happened. Oh, yeah. He's that person outside of the court. <laughs> it's an important role. I mean, since we're on the subject, uh, I know we got rid of that recommendation segment from the earlier days of the podcast, but Prodigy from Mob Deep uh, recently died. And one of the first interviews that I ever heard that sort of resembles the kind of radio that I'm really excited about now in my life was an interview that... I was driving around New Jersey and I happened to just get onto the local NPR affiliate without knowing it. And Jesse Thorne was interviewing Prodigy for Bullseye. And I, I think I just never heard someone talking in such a detail, authentic way about their own life. 
It was one of those interviews I just ended up actually sitting in the car and waiting for the interview to end before leaving. Uh, so if you're looking to listen to an interview like that, just Google Prodigy Jesse Thorne. Yeah, I mean, David, I've been meaning to do this for a while on the show, but are there are there any other pods that you've been listening to that are exciting you? Not really. All right. Well, Radiotopia has a podcast called Ear Hustle. Oh, what is it? It's a podcast that is made inside San Quentin. Oh, really? Uh, prison. Yeah. Um, I listened to the first, like the intro app, which kind of just gave the exposition of what's going to be happening on the podcast, but it's two guys inside working with someone else who's like making a Radiotopia show and it's been pretty cool so far. Oh, wow. Check it out. I, I totally revoke my previous recommendation. <laughs> should, everyone should listen to this. It sounds a lot more interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good pod. Um, I'm just going to keep saying pod, by the way. Um, yeah, it's a podcast. <laughs> so wrapping up the schmooze segment of the show. Mm-hmm. Usually on the show, when we have full episodes, they're themed in some way. We try to pair together interviews where we can. We try to sort of tie a bow around it that can be more easily digested. Today, the theme of the show is Dean Spade, because we really love Dean Spade and really love talking with Dean Spade. And we got the opportunity to again and thought that the conversation was enough of a full meal that it merited an episode. That was a full and hearty uh, explanation of this episode, so I don't really know what else to kind of throw out there. Are you really uh, going with this food metaphor? <laughs> I mean, I mean, one thing that we should say, uh, just a content warning for the episode itself, that during the interview there is a reference to suicide. If that's not something that you want to hear while listening to the podcast, I would say just just turn it off now, and uh, and you can listen to the podcast that Sam was recommending. Or you can listen to episode 14 of the Trafe podcast entitled Resisting Pinkwashing with Dean Spade. Oh, yeah. I haven't listened to that one in a while. Hopefully uh, we knew how to edit at that point. <laughs> yeah, but for people who don't know Dean's work, uh, Dean is the founder of the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. It's uh, a legal collective from New York City that gives free legal services to trans and gender nonconforming people who are low income and people of color. He's a prof at the Seattle University School of Law. He is the author of Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law, and just is generally a wonderful person. So this is your episode of Trey for the 5th of Tammuz 5777. He's Gadal, he's Kadash. Um, yeah, I'm Dean Spade. I live in Seattle. I'm a law professor and spent the last 20 years or so part of trying to build like racial and economic justice centered queer and trans resistance mostly U.S.-based. Well, thank you so much for joining us a second or third or fourth time, depending on how we want to count all of it. I'm so glad to be here. Um, so, Dean, the last time we saw each other was at the Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, the big conference, National Members Meeting in Chicago about two months ago. Could you maybe just talk a bit about uh, what you thought about the conference? Yeah, I really enjoyed the conference. I think it was one of the best organized things like that I've ever been to. It felt just like politically really, like really right on, like the whole conversation of the conference or my experience of it with what I happened to go to and was really like breaking silos and bringing together some of the main political movements of our time that we would want JVP to be deeply connected with, like 
the movement for black lives and the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline and obviously migrant justice movements. There was just like this way at which like a lot of the vital left political flashpoints were deeply integrated into the program. And it was almost leading membership towards deeper, more intersectional engagement. And I feel like in a lot of large organizations, you get the sense that the membership is like having to push the staff and the org being like, come on, catch up. And in this case, I felt like the org and the staff and the sort of national model is providing like useful, really well thought out material and engagement. Can I ask you guys one question before you move on? Please. Yes. I want to know what you thought about the conference. Oh, yeah. I feel like for me, I just never been to anything like that before. Like Sam, we've we've talked a lot about this where we're, we're kind of coming to this thing that we're describing as the Jewish left as radical leftists primarily. And so being in those spaces over the years, there's often been this sense of dissonance, at least for me, being a radical in those spaces that are usually a bit more liberal. And so being in a space that was of a scale that I'd never seen on the Jewish left, but also having it be grounded in radical leftist ideas and emphasizing anti-colonial struggle, emphasizing combating white supremacy, like it, it just blew my mind. I'd never experienced anything like that before. That's awesome. And Dean, if I can segue this back to one of the discussions that we had at the conference was the kind of liberal rights discourse and the nonviolence. And I feel like, or I know that was something that you felt was very important to engage with. Yeah, I think one of the struggles I sometimes have with the ways that people I know in the U.S. talk about BDS is that they're like really emphasizing it's nonviolence. Maybe people don't mean it this way, but sometimes I feel like there's an implication there, like there's something wrong with Palestinians taking up any other form of self-defense or direct action that might be considered violent. And we know that on you know in the U.S., graffiti is considered violence, like property destruction. I mean, just like definition is basically anytime anyone does anything. There's this like kind of implication <laughs> of judgmentalness about tactics of a colonized people that's often in defensive BDS by certain speakers and that completely accepts the definition of violence laid out by basically the cops. So like the cops can do anything they want. The state can do anything it wants. It can kidnap your people and put them in a cage, can starve out communities. It can poison people. None of that's violence, but anything that, that people fighting back in defense of their communities do um, that isn't like on the sidewalk tame and permitted is somehow not okay. And so I'm really concerned about the ways that that gets sometimes reproduced um, in the Jewish left, how certain narratives of pacifism might get folded into a U.S.-Palestine solidarity framework at times and don't need to be. So we have a lot of questions about your take on the Jewish left or the radical Jewish left, but I kind of just want to pause those for a sec to get to a section of the interview focused on getting to know Dean Spade. (laughs) I'm kind of curious on how you were able to incorporate your Jewish identity into your radical politics. Me and Sam were having some discussions recently with actually a journalist, and we we were trying to describe how we came to identify as leftist Jews. And we each had very different stories. And so I'm kind of interested in your journey. Cool. Well, okay. Someday you have to tell me your stories. I'm so curious. (laughs) But I realize you're on the clock. Okay. Um... I should say a few things about like just my Jewish identity generally. So, you know, I grew up in uh, rural central Virginia with my non-Jewish parent, right? Like my parents weren't together. My dad is a Holocaust refugee who's, he left Germany with his family in 1938 when he was a kid. And both my parents have passed. My mom was, a you know, not Jewish. Um, she was raised uh, Catholic in, in New Brunswick. Our last name was Goldschmidt. And 
there's just not a, like there's just not a lot of Jews where I'm from and going to like public elementary school in the rural South, everybody goes to church. When you go spend the night at someone's house, you go to church with them on Sunday morning. Like it was a big deal that we weren't Christian. And it was, a you know, at least a few times when people said things to me that let me know that, that like, you know, Jews are born with horns and all this kind of stuff, you know, like that stuff was like in the water. So even though I wasn't raised religious, I had a strong sense of Jewish identity as different than the other people around us. And I was aware of my dad's family history and that was meaningful to me, even though I wasn't being raised around his family. And then I think like as I was coming into radical politics in the late 90s in New York City, Palestine solidarity was part of the set of things people I knew were concerned about. We were concerned about the cops. There was an interest in what was going on in Vieques with Navy bombing. And there was people making connections between what's happening in Palestine and what's happening in Puerto Rico. There was, you know, a lot of stuff about Giuliani and about New York City politics and anti-poor stuff and the zoning out of sex work. All of these things were like in this like multi-issue left politics that I was being introduced to. So Palestine Solidarity, it made perfect sense with inside the political communities I was in. It wasn't like an exception or something you weren't allowed to talk about or like a taboo in the ways that it is. I know for some people who enter Jewish left politics where it's like the exception. So something that I've experienced both through doing this show, but also in attempts at Jewish left organizing over the years is that I really felt like I could look before and after doing that work and compare how deeply I had granted myself in a sense of Jewish identity, that it was sort of through that work that I, I guess, hit a a different level of identifying with Jewishness. And I was wondering, I've read about all, all, and we've talked about the work uh, that you folks are doing in Seattle around the pinkwashing fights. And I was wondering if if that played any role in in being able to identify more deeply of of doing that work. It's interesting. I mean, I think that like, identifying as Jewish for me, one thing that has a lot of meaning for me certainly is like my relationship to my ancestors. Like, because I grew up with my, my single mom until she died. And then I was in foster care with Christian foster parents. Being someone who has lacked family connection or not felt like I had access to my family, to my blood family, or like to information about my elders. You know, my grandparents have all been dead for a long time. My parents are both dead. One aspect of Jewish identity for me is like when I practice Jewish ritual, I'm like, I'm doing something my ancestors have done for like thousands of years or hundreds of years or however much we don't know, you know, but like that, that feels grounding or necessary as part of my like healing from the trauma of like loss of family. So that's definitely like one track of what that is. And then I think the political piece for me is like the reasons I believe I don't have the family connections to my family's traditions that I would like to have are political. Like the reasons that, you know, like my, when my grandparents came to the United States, my grandfather killed himself and my grandmother was institutionalized. My dad was pretty mentally ill his entire life. This is trauma from like political events. You know, many other reasons my mom died so young. I feel the political conditions that produced some of those losses in my life and those are meaningful to me. And then I see political conditions are being produced in my name, right? Like as an American Jew, there's all these Jewish organizations that produce things like police exchanges, that produce things like Israel advocacy that sends my tax dollars to this brutal colonial situation and that produces stories about trans Jewish people like me and how we should want to go hang out in Israel where everything will be great for us. You know, all of this stuff, I feel, is certainly like a deep political responsibility to represent a different framework about what it is to be Jewish, what it is to be queer. You know, there's a there's a movement afoot to make queer identity only mean like a married 
suburban identity in which you go to Pride once a year and feel really great about that, in which you like are part of the diversity of your straight friends' social groups or something. And then a bunch of us are like, oh no, queer queer identity means like hating war. Queer identity means hating cops forever. Like, you know, like this is just like, a, you know, we're like battling over what these identities actually mean. And that is that battle is so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think last time that we spoke, I, I asked you a question, like sort of taking the framework around queer assimilation and, and how it could relate to Jewishness. But I've sort of been I had this other question I've been tossing around in my head that I wanted to talk about. Uh, me and Sam have this friend in Montreal named Moy. She's sort of like a older Jewish anarchist, sort of like a movement elder and movement historian. Uh, and, and he's been talking to us a lot lately about how he thinks that we aren't talking enough about capitalism on the left anymore also talking about the Jewish left. And do you, do you think this is true? Or, or like, how do you feel about that sentiment right now? It's really interesting to hear that because I have been myself having a recent set of feelings like the kind of political issues that are really, really visible as left issues. Poverty is like painfully absent. People are pissed at the cops or they're pissed at the pipelines or they're pissed about the border wall idea. And obviously poor people are more affected by all those things than anybody else. But poverty itself, you know, even though everybody's priced out of every city and there's a lot of concern about gentrification, the actual like housing politics are not on the surface. There's like a way in which and I think it relates to also maybe to like social media culture and the ways in which everything is about representation right now. It's like people declare a lot of victories or whenever anything is represented, whether or not anything actually materially changed from that representation. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something I'm curious about your friend's observation because I feel like there's something happening where like poverty is really like out of style, like nobody cares about it. Um, even though obviously it's deeply connected to the things people would say they care about. There's like a a lack of connections being made to like battles around public benefits, evictions, shelters, basic medical access. That's not what I think people think is like the hip left issues, even though things that are so closely connected to that and totally overlapping are identified as such. And I'm, I feel very worried about that. I feel like sometimes it can also relate to like a more overly simplistic or rigid identity politics that can emerge. People say the word capitalism, but I don't know that people t- think about poverty. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the way that the way that Moish, uh, I feel bad speaking on his behalf, because he's not here. But um, I feel like the I mean, way David, he's gonna be happy that we talked <laughs> about this no matter what. But but the way the way <laughs> that he usually frames it is, you know, he describes seeing, you know, every 15 years or so having like a pendulum swinging within the left in different directions. And he talks about seeing too much of an emphasis on class that, you know, collapsed and erased other issues. And now he feels like the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. And we're talking about all the vital realities of how people experience the world and oppression, but aren't grounding it in a good analysis of structures of power that centers capitalism. That's that's sort of his take. Yeah, I think the pendulum is interesting. To me, what I notice is that you always have like white straight men mostly it's not exclusively them but you usually have white straight men being like it's everything's class everything's class and like every single time anyone gives a lecture anywhere some white straight man raises his hand and is like but isn't this all really about class and that you know is a classic move that we understand is about fear of actually having to contend with whiteness and really think deeply about gender and race and all that great fine and so i think that for that reason we're, we're all very critical of that move as we should be but there is actually a danger sometimes. Like some, I think in some situations what you can get is you could get a framework for talking about race or gender or anything that if it didn't engage with class, what you can actually do is end up lifting up. Like, for example, you can be lifting up 
upper class white queers or upper class white women or only like the most college educated people in in any kind of marginalized group and talking about the issues only through their eyes. So like we care about it when those people get pulled over or those stories are egregious to us or those border experiences are egregious to us. You know, this college senior can't get back in the country or we, we kind of like focus on those stories because the media loves those people as like the deserving of whatever subgroup. And then our left movements can totally participate in that by failing to think about like who is the most actually the most vulnerable within the different sites of state violence or populations that we're concerned about. And it can kind of all happen unintentionally or without being made explicit. And I don't know if you guys have seen this, but you know, a lot of stuff I've been trying to focus on since the election is stuff about like mutual aid projects and the ways in which what we need to be mobilizing people towards is not all entirely just acts of representation, like put this on Facebook or like, you know, go to the ACLU website and declare this, that you care about the constitution and like all of these kinds of limited, um, very like representation oriented (laughs) moves, but instead like, how do we build mutual aid projects that actually support people who are like in the crosshairs of this political moment and are like, how can through building mutual aid projects to support each other, can we actually like build the new world we need, build our preparedness. Um, And part of the reason that interests me so much is because I think it brings people down to like a very material, like, okay, exactly how does this system I I feel pissed about work in my town? Mm -hmm. How does eviction work or how does border control work or like how does getting out of jail work here or how does childcare work here? And if I had to actually deal with that, I would have to like really contend with the complexities of like, you know, race, gender, indigeneity, poverty, who's vulnerable, how people get vulnerable. I'd have to build solidarities that I wasn't already practicing, but I maybe wasn't aware I wasn't practicing. You just get a much more complex account and that can really build a very, like very deep relationships and a deep politics and a deep set of practices. What's hard about that is like a lot of people I know, including like people who are like, what should I do? Oh my God, I'm so freaked out by Trump. What should I do? People actually don't want to like be around poor people, (laughs) you know, or like actually don't want to like deal with icky government offices. So I think like the level of disinterest and poverty at its worst, it's like, I'm very interested in like meeting a celebrity activist. I'm not very interested at all in like ever writing a letter to a prisoner, you know, like our priorities are, are very upside down right now. Um, Dean, for people who don't follow you on social medias, could you direct our listeners to either a website or an organization that deals more with uh, what you've just been talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, with a group of people, I made a website that's called BigDoorBrigade.com, and it's just a collection of tons of information about various mutual aid projects. The hope is just to inspire people and help people like set up models and things like prison letter writing projects, um, childcare collectives, projects where people help each other through housing court and try to prevent evictions. Basically, volunteers getting together and trying to produce support in like a key site they've identified as a site of vulnerability where, you know, they could make a difference and just committing, like barreling down and being like, we're just going to do this. We're going to do it. We're going to keep doing it. And then we're going to get better at it. And we're going to make mistakes. Those projects are, you know, really differ from like sort of charity and social services in ways that I think are politically really, really meaningful. And they're about like indicting a system instead of choosing who are the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Um, so anyway, that website, um, Big Door Brigade, kind of has the basic analysis of what, what mutual aid is and why we think it matters and why it's different than charity and why we think it's, you know, a useful way to engage right now. And just hoping people will, like, take something up based on where their passion is and where they're seeing need and, like, dig deep into it and, and use it as a, you know, sort of a political home. Well, Dean, we have many more questions we love to ask. Uh, unfortunately, we're reaching the end of our studio booking, uh, but it's always so great to chat. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, anytime. 
No flag is a good flag. It's time for Shkoyach. 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 Welcome to Shkoyach. Hello, welcome. We don't describe the segment anymore. We don't set up the segment anymore. But we just talk about not setting it up, right? But Sam? Yes? I miss talking about Shkoyach. Uh, yeah, you, listen, you fought hard on the side of not talking about it. What, how about, what are your feelings about Shkoyach? No, what does that mean? I love Shkoyach. When we start the Shkoyach segment, I'm so happy to be here every time. It's my favorite part of the show. All right. We'll just move on. What's your Shkoyach? My Shkoyach for this week goes to those who have been doing amazing organizing, intervening in pride marches, specifically in Toronto. Groovy. Are there are there any other locations or do you want to hone in on the Toronto example? Well, I feel like I, I, I want to start with Toronto. I mean, given given the media coverage of it, everybody who lives around Toronto probably knows that as a result of all the hard work and, and the intense backlash uh, that was a result of Black Lives Matter Toronto intervening in last year's Pride, uh, that there are no uniform police allowed in this year's parade. Mm. So to them off the bat. Can I give a concurrent? Can I give a brief concurrent anti to the Toronto police officers who went to New York City to demonstrate in pride in uniform. Oh, that really happened? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, at least they weren't in Toronto. I guess, but they were in another demo. Um, but uh, my other Shkoyach is going to a group of queer anti-Zionist Jewish leftists in Toronto who got together and called themselves No Pride in Zionism uh, for intervening in this event that was going on. Pride Toronto hosted an event in collaboration with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. That that seems to be a particular political tact that Pride is taking by collaborating with a group such as Sija. Yeah, a definite anti-squach to them for that decision. Uh, unsurprising for Sija. It's definitely part of their pinkwashing campaign. Yes. Uh, but thankfully, the No Pride and Zionism folks hosted this Shabbat in the streets. It was inspired by a J-Fredge action, actually, uh, the Seder in the streets that they had in New York. Oh, cool. They had about a dozen people who got together with banners outside the event at the 519, and they shared food, and they talked with people about why they were there and why they were opposing what was going on inside. And they eventually, they actually went inside, and some people were less friendly. There were some JDL sympathizers uh, apparently inside as well. Aye. But overall, they made their presence known, and they didn't allow Pride to get away with that kind of collaboration without, without having to fight for it. So shkoyach to the No Pride and Zionism folks. And, and is this some kind of collective or it was just a loose gathering of folks? I mean, my understanding from a distance was that it was uh, people getting together sort of an ad hoc way. But here's hoping that it continues into into something bigger. Oh, cool. Um, and a final, uh, I know I'm giving a lot this week. Uh, final, if I may, Sam. Please. Uh, final shkoyach to other leftist Jews in Toronto who, upon hearing that the Jewish Defense League had plans on showing up to Pride with anti-Islam banners... Uh, put out a petition and put a lot of pressure on Pride to make sure that they wouldn't be allowed there. Uh, so shkoyach all around to folks organizing this year. Yeah, definitely. And and David, if I could just add another amendment. Oh, um, yeah, really jam-packing it this week. The leader of the Canadian JDL or whatever, the head honcho, I don't know how he, how he calls himself, but he listened to our podcast last week. Uh, we can tell by SoundCloud statistics, so thank you, SoundCloud. So if you're listening again, uh, we are giving you another anti so direct anti to you. Oh, yeah, you're the worst. Terrible person. So I feel like we have taken this as far as we can. There's a lot packed into one shkoyach. Uh So Sam, what is your shkoyach for today? Honestly, it's it's late. It's a Monday night. I'm just tired. I don't have uh, like really? a shkoyach. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's the first time we've never. Oh, actually, you know what? This is not the first time this has happened. 
when was the last time? I don't remember. I have a memory of this happening before. I just didn't have a square? I don't remember what we did, actually. All right. Um, but what about that thing you were telling me before about when we were outside about the, you're talking about the, your day at the clinic? And I guess. I don't know. So some context, Sam uh, is working at a legal clinic right now. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how I brought it up. I think it, it, it had something to do with someone who came in basically talking about a family dispute and... It's a pattern that I think I've seen a lot in the last couple of weeks that I've been working there where people people want the legal system to solve issues that the legal system can't solve. Like personal, sort of like... Like my sister is doing this one thing, my mom's doing this other thing, my brother, you know, it's like... And, and I think the thing that keeps resonating for me is how much we're kind of taught that the legal system has solutions for us, that the state can solve our problems for us in a lot of ways. And it can, and it and it doesn't, and it's not the point of the legal system in any way. But so many people who are oftentimes like structurally disadvantaged in so many different ways feel like the legal system is their only recourse. And it just is really heartbreaking to see that the social infrastructure just doesn't exist for people to deal with those problems within their communities and with their neighbors and Yeah, and I mean also like, you know, growing up, being socialized into a society that trains you to not be capable or interested in resolving conflicts or engaging conflict at all because we're taught that this is a role for the state, this is a role for the legal system. And so, uh, yeah, I I imagine being in that role, like when you were telling me before, I was thinking like, oh man, like do you get a lot of people coming in just being like like having a conflict with somebody? I mean, it's often framed differently because people like so much of our understanding of the laws from TV Mm. and then people will often use like phrases from TV kind of shows that like I don't learn in law school, like I've never heard of these terms. Yeah, people people searching for answers to like legitimate problems and some of them are structural and some of them are like these interpersonal ones, but when they come together it's people naming their interpersonal problems as like these legal issues. I think it's it's shown me that legal clinics that aren't grounded in community organizing and aren't grounded in mm. connections with existing groups, it is just kind of a hamster wheel situation. So this is yet another anti-square to the legal system. And also how we're socialized to have certain expectations of the law and the legal system. I got no disagreement here. <laughs> That's like a triple anti-square. Yeah. I guess I had something to say ultimately. Wherever you go, there you are. And the thing you want to say right behind <laughs> you. So that's the old pod app. Or podcast episode, as they say in... uh, In the biz. In the biz. Um, (laughs) If you like what you heard on this episode and you would love to hear more, the best way you can do that is by subscribing on a podcast app. Something like Podkicker, Stitcher maybe, Apple something or other, whatever they're calling it now. If you have an Apple smartphone, there is a podcast app built into that phone. It's the purple thing with the pole that seems to be broadcasting things. Side note, the word podcast has an interesting origin. Benjamin Walker did a great app on it once. You're really plugging all the Radiotopia shows tonight. Did Roman Artists give me a kickback? Yes. Uh, we'd really urge you to check out the website that we were talking about with Dean, uh, Big Door Brigade. We'll have a link in the show notes along with uh, everything that we talked about in the episode. Um, but this is the part of the show where we bug our listeners to check out other things, things that are usually self-serving to us. And quickly, it is sending us a voice memo, which you can do in one to one, to one minute. Uh, <laughs> one to two minutes. Tell us your name, where you're living, what you want to talk about, pretty much anything. 
We'll play it in the middle of the show and you can communicate whatever idea you have to uh, Trafe listeners. Also, please give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts or uh, iTunes, whatever it's called. It's a little unclear right now. Um, I believe that they are actually revealing the podcast statistics soon. Yeah, so we're going to actually see when people stop listening to our show. So please, even if you stop listening, just keep pressing play and move your phone to the side <laughs> and let it run through. I mean, no one else sees the statistics, just us. It's true, but we'll be sad. It'll be a humbling experience, it's but true. Uh, maybe give us a heads up in the form of a review, just yeah. so we're not taken off guard. Be like, I listened to two minutes and then I turned it off yeah that's fine and give us five stars while you do that <laughs> and finally we have a patreon account support us if you can obviously there's tons of more important things to support yeah we included in the show notes is a link to a list of organizations that we would actually urge you to support before considering supporting the trafe podcast trafe podcast is sam bick and david zinman a huge thanks to ckut 90.3 fm where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks to Kira Page, to Claire Hertig, to Cadence O'Neill, to C. Lavery, to Saxon German so-called for the music you heard in the episode, and also to Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi. You can follow us on various social media accounts at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. Uh, and please, as always, send hate mail, comments, or suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. See you in two weeks. Like, imagine if there were two competing comic book teams. Uh, okay. And then one comic book team got Com- all the superstars. Like the writers? No, 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 no. Like characters. Uh, okay. Like, they were both the best comic book squads in, in comic book land. Sort of like a Space Jam scenario. I really hope Space Jam 2 comes out. But returning to the point, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the... You with me or are you snoozing? Uh, sorry, I stopped listening. <laughs>